The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Today, my guest will be talking about smart cities and the role of big data in them. We'll find out more about that in a minute, but first, as always, a bit about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist and media trainer with 30 years' experience. You might have heard or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books, or seen me in The Guardian, Intelligence Sourcing Magazine, and elsewhere. I go to a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about what's likely in 30 years' time or so, and I watch the audience and me nodding sagely, knowing that we'll have retired long before that. I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator and above all interviewer to consider and ask people what's likely to happen uh, early next year, mid next year, next couple of years, and the action that we need to take now. So I came up with the near futurist concept. Do please have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, and some people do, do have a look at the showreel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word, or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, also on the site. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store. Actually, if you have, because some people have, thank you very much. And wherever you download from. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Well, that's a whole mountain of stuff about me, so let's get to my guest for the show. That's what you're here to listen for, after all. He's chief executive of Hoptroff, a company that specializes in highly accurate, traceable time-as-a-service in the financial services and digital ledger areas. He strongly believes that in an increasing digital world, it's necessary to establish accountability and responsibility for documents, as well as incidents such as breaches and systems failures through timestamps that are highly accurate, traceable, and immutable in sequence. Without these, the digital rubble left behind after an incident might not offer a definitive sequence of events that led to it. Uh, he's joining me virtually, and he's Simon Kenny. Simon, you're very welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Great stuff. Okay, I'm going to start by putting my cards on the table. Uh, as you might have guessed, and I'm sure the listeners are quite used to this by now from me, I cut and pasted most of that introduction from your associate's summary. So first of all, thank you very much for sending that. But what's it all mean, and why are documents and this you know, audit trail so important? Well, it's not so much documents as the records that are important because computer processes now are shared across devices in different places with different setups as people adopt cloud computing. So to understand what a computer's done and to hold the operators accountable for what it's done, you need coherent records of the process uh, that have been verified somehow. Um, if the device is shared a process and then you don't have accurate synchronized time, then the events in the record appear in the wrong sequence and they have the wrong intervals. So effectively what you have is a situation where effects uh, will no longer follow cause, it may well precede it in the records that you see. And when that happens, and you consider these machines are executing thousands of instructions a second, accountability for those lost. What we do is we enable the clocks on all these different devices in different places to share the same time, synchronized with what's called universal time, which is the consensus of all the scientific institutions around the world as to what the length of time is. We distribute it down to the cloud centers, onto the computers, and then we keep logs which verify that, that the time is right. And in that way, the records which are produced have the correct sequence, they have the correct interval, and the virtual data is verified by the physical standard of the universal time. 
I imagine a lot of what you do is quite confidential to your clients, so uh, this could be a little tricky, but I'm just wondering if you could give me an example, by all means anonymized, of how this can actually affect stuff, because this sounded uh, interesting, it sounded vital, but it also sounded very abstract. If you could make it concrete somehow, that would be a real help. Okay, if you could imagine a situation where someone's trading in financial services and there's a dispute about whether a transaction happened or not. A good example would be that someone decides that they want to buy a particular stock or share mm-hmm. and they're looking at the pricing and when they've decided they want to buy it, they also quickly decide that they don't like the trend in the market and they want to cancel it. So what happens is they send the instruction to buy, but then they very quickly send an instruction to cancel. Now the question is, did the instruction to cancel arrive before they executed the instruction to buy. And that problem will occur in computers every single day in thousands of locations. So if the only way to resolve that definitively is that the computer that actually sends the instruction and the computer that receives the instruction need to share the same synchronized time. Otherwise, what you're looking at is a dispute between two inaccurate clocks and this can end up in something which is intractable and unresolvable. But if you've got a synchronized time, you can resolve it very quickly because it will be very clear what the sequence was, what the interval was, whether something occurred before or after the instruction. One of the things that I know you're quite hot on and feel quite passionately about is the effect that this is going to have on smart cities. A lot of of people talk about smart cities, and it would be nice to focus on them. Now, a family member of mine works for a local authority, and she assures me there's no fixed definition of a smart city. When I first threw the term at her, she said, what exactly do you mean? And it occurred to me that I only had a very vague idea, actually. Uh, It was to do with connectivity, and uh, that's it. So I wonder if you could specify, when you talk about smart cities, what exactly are you talking about? I agree that there isn't a a textbook definition because it's still something that's very much a work in progress. But the aspiration is that devices around a smart city would be networked so that the data from them could be shared and they would then be optimised to do things like reduce power usage, to affect um, monitor things like pollution, to enable uh, security and safety to be enforced. I mean, a good example would be, um, we're working with somebody right now who's um, creating smart rivers. And a smart river is a river that has sensors that sunk into it, which actually sample the water and test for different chemicals in the presence of different pollutants. And these are networked and have, and what's important in the sequence on these is that when something happened upstream and it flowed downstream, when exactly did it happen? And can you actually prove that that timing was correct? So what we do is install our software onto the sensors and we then link it so that there's a chain of comparisons back to a trusted time. And we can absolutely definitively tell you when the pollutant hit this sensor in this location and how long it delayed to get into the next one. And so on that data, it's monitoring all the time. You don't have to have people um, out there sampling the water or getting in disputes about where it came from. It's literally a sentinel in the river, and it's one of the things that's very important, particularly now looking at uh, the uh, developing world, where people they don't maybe have the same restraints of industry in terms of putting pollutants in the river. Obviously, the results of having polluted rivers affects everyone's life, everyone downstream suffers from it. So there's an example of something tangible where timing is an important part of making something smart, creating data that actually creates patterns that you can 
use, and you can use those to optimize, monitor behavior, hold someone accountable, and uh, intervene should that behavior be damaging to people's lives. So that's the really is again, finding those hidden patterns in data that you don't normally see and using them to the benefit of the community. I suppose it's not just about accountability either, is it? I mean, of course, that's a very important element, as you just said, and I'm not downplaying that. But in, say, scientific research, if you use a really simplistic example, uh, if you didn't know whether you had a cold and therefore you sneezed or you'd sneezed and that had caused you to have a cold, you know, if you didn't know which order they went, you know, obviously we all do. But I'm sure there are other areas in which we're not quite sure of exactly what the sequence is. You know, you can't start to treat the thing if you don't know the full background. So, you know, perhaps the sequencing could help scientific research and other things as well. Yes, it is. Exactly. It's the, I mean, if you want to have a causal relationship between things, obviously you're not going to have an effect precede uh, the cause. You're looking for that causal relationship. It's essential you pinpoint when something happened and when the effect was recorded. So you can see whether it's something that happens instantly, does it take time to happen? All of these things. It's very important. You know, data records of computers, which are all virtual, there isn't, uh, that is the only record you have. And if the time sequence is completely incoherent, it really compromises what the big data can tell you. And this is, frankly, a common problem for a lot of this big data activity is that the, um, the data is not, as they would say, clean uh, in terms of its timing. It's actually quite polluted and confused. Now, of course, a lot of people are going to hear about the idea of big data. They're going to hear about all this data being gathered, all these devices being connected, etc. We've already seen, as you say, smart rivers. I've certainly been out driving and been told that by a sign that I'm on a smart motorway, which I assume is gathering data on speed and all sorts of other things and safety from various other vehicles around me. A lot of people will hear that and they'll be quite concerned about big brotherism. Should we be at all concerned about uh, all this data being gathered about us, about the way we do it, about every inanimate object around us ultimately being potentially gathering data for a smart city? Um, yes, I think uh, we do need to be very careful about how we proceed with the data. And one of the reasons you say that there's no definition of a smart city, and it's, I said it's still something that's being developed, one of the biggest obstacles everyone's working to try and overcome is quite what should happen with this data, how should it be handled, what would be some sensible protocols to have for it in many different aspects. Because obviously if someone is thinking about investing money and you take a disruptive attitude towards putting in this infrastructure, you're going to want to own this data and have as few restraints on what you do with it as possible. But on the other hand, uh, people have learned that you know, data is um, valuable, it's potentially uh, can be quite damaging if it's misused. So there's a pushback against that saying, well, no, we need to have some very clear protocols and restrictions on how this is all handled. So that is the, the technology for networking is available. The, ability for this data to be gathered is there. The infrastructure play um, that we're doing is very much an enabling thing for putting this data into orderly forms where the patterns are very discernible. But quite how that data is handled is something we should all be, uh, I think, uh, paying careful attention to because it will be a very, very comprehensive picture of what's going on, where people are, uh, how their lives could be influenced. And we need to make sure that it's protected under the proper uh, protocols are in place.
And of course, the other thing that I feel very passionately about, and I'm sure you do too, our last episode was actually on the infrastructure of the cities, infrastructure of utilities in particular, and security. Um, the security specialist I was talking to was talking about state actors trying to hack into water supplies, into electricity supplies, into possibly grinding a city to a halt. If we make our cities smarter, that's actually a bigger prize for a hostile actor take uh, control of. I'm, I'm assuming you uh, it's almost a no-brainer. We've got to have uh, security foremost in our minds as we go forward with this, haven't we? Yes, we do. It depends how centralised you are, and it depends on what is possible to do from the centre and how vulnerable these individual devices and nodes would be to um, to infection. But yes, it's it's an op- this is part of the protocols that need to get um, carefully sorted out before you begin implementing this. Because if you implement it hastily and you haven't um, securely protected, you literally could open up all of your infrastructures. You say the power set, the power grid, the water systems, the traffic lights, the air traffic control, all sorts of things could suddenly become vulnerable. Now each of these, I think people are very aware of the need for security on these devices, but you know, you've got humans involved and you've got people tapping on things they maybe shouldn't tap on, etc. But protocols need to be developed which protect against this stuff. And part of what we're doing with the synchronization is intended to help with this because obviously latency signatures become really well defined when you have universal synchronized time. The distances between different points will be defined by their latency. They'll have signatures. You'll be able to use that orderly data to actually look at whether something is infected, understand the sequence by which it happened. All of this, there's a yin and yang of this. If yes, you can get, if you can get inside, you can cause trouble. But equally, if it's well organized and you've actually made your data orderly, you're going to be able to defend against Having looked at the benefits and some of the drawbacks, or practicalities, I should say, rather than drawbacks, because everything that's technology needs to be secure, can you give me an idea of what we actually need in technological terms to make this work, by all means including the stuff about the, uh, you know, uh, tracks time as a service? If you could elaborate on that, that'd be great as well. In the past, when you've been trying to implement synchronization to very, very high levels of accuracy, it's involved you having to put clocks into the data centers everywhere where you want the synchronization. As I said, people have gone for um, cloud uh, computing because they're trying to get away from having to have hardware and they want a right way on it when you can rent it, and the same with the connectivity. Um, and so then what's happened is, is that these big cloud operators have been developed without necessarily having a very high accuracy of synchronization on the systems. So what we decided to do was to create a network service that would enable time to be sent from timing hubs, which consisted of atomic clocks, uh, over network connectivity to the data centers, and then simply received and analyzed in software. So we got rid of the hardware, the need for all the clocks, and the software created logs, which allows us then to verify it's happened. So that means that the cost of synchronization has come tumbling down, and it means also that you can spread it further, because it's also possible now to extend traceability in time to edge devices, such as computers or cameras or um, mobile phones, so that when something happened on a mobile phone and you can actually pinpoint it in location and in time so that if somebody wants to dispute whether that 
Um, you placed that bet at that time, or you made that purchase at that time, or you bought that ticket. Uh, the record could be there, and you could produce it and prove it. Uh, whereas now, as I said, when you have clocks disagree, um, it's just a dispute. Um, I did it at this time. Well, my clocks at this. I don't know whether I think my clocks right. Well, I think my clocks right, and nothing gets resolved. So that's the reason why this is important, and the utility of it is. It's almost like it's an a priori condition for information and timestamps to be trusted, that they're verified and that they're continuously synchronized. Because computers do things a thousand times faster than you and I do. Oh, absolutely. I can see this being very, very valuable, um, and I can see the, the application in the commercial sector, you've mentioned purchases, things like that. I can also see in principle that uh, this could make smart, smart cities work. But uh, if there's one thing that uh, we're not overburdened with in the public sector, and uh, never have been really, but possibly even less so nowadays, it's uh, the budget to pay for all this stuff. Where is the, uh, you know, where would the infrastructure for smart cities, who, who's expected to pay for this stuff? That's the, uh, the interesting tension right now between individuals who would like to um, fund this infrastructure and quite what the data returns would be, whether there should be limits on that or whether the data should be um, widely available. But also, infrastructure um, comes up for renewal. It has cycles. It needs to be upgraded. And just the costs of having sensors, the costs of networking the sensors, are all coming down. You're, we're very close now to the launch of the 5G infrastructure. And the 5G infrastructure is going to be probably less about mobile phones that you and I use and much more about automation and uh, connectivity of the Internet of Things. And that will uh, bring down the cost of the networking, make it much, much more efficient, and introducing simple networked uh, replacements, things which you used to... Um, Used to own. I mean, a good example. I mean, just think of the doorbells. In the past, the doorbell was just a, a button on the door, and it rang a bell inside, or it went bing bong against a battery-operated um, uh, system. Now it's um, got a networked uh, connection in it. It's got a small video camera in it, and when you're not home, you can answer your own door from wherever you are using your mobile phone. Now that's becoming quite common, and people are adopting it. It's an example of something that isn't necessarily funded by, you know, a big government exercise. It's something that people just do for themselves. But that data becomes networked and shared to create, if you like, a smart environment. Thank you very much indeed for all that, Simon. We're reaching the end of our time, so I could ask you finally uh, where people can find out more about yourself and, of course, your organisation. That'd be great. Well, uh, if, if you're interested in finding out more about um, traceable timing, then our uh, website is hoptroff.com, H-O-P-T-R-O-F-F, and you can read our uh, uh, various explanations of how traceable timing works and how it's applied to different industries um, at that site. Simon Kenny, thank you very much for joining me. You're very welcome. Thank you for speaking with me. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton. I'll be back in two weeks' time, as always. And don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk, as well as hopdrop.com. See you in a fortnight. Thank you.